Thank you, Mitch. You know, that's, that was our favorite hymn. When we first got married, uh, we said, that's going to be our hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I don't hear it that much anymore, but every time I hear about it, I, it reminds me of that and reminds me of how faithful God has been to us in our lives, faithful enough to bring us here, right? And when I think about his faithfulness in my life, I think about earlier on the journey, some of the people that he used to help form us. And uh, one person who really stands out is a Bible teacher who we used to hear quite a bit. And we had the privilege of hearing him in person for a number of times. His name was Howard Hendricks. Some of you might have heard of Howard Hendricks, and sometimes we would call him Howie. That he, that's what he went by, is Howie or Prof. Um, quite a character and, and an, an excellent communicator. And I remember one occasion where he was speaking to a bunch of us pastors, and he started speaking to us about how pastors uh, will sometimes fall in sin. And he said that he had done some research with some other people. And they had researched. Now, it's been so many years, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think I've got a pretty, I give you a pretty good picture. As I recall, they interviewed over 300 people. These are 300 men who had had very specific sin problems. It wasn't just like a maybe, but hey, may, hey, by the way, Greg, Greg Yarborough's here, and he's done the, the um, done our, our, um, laid our cement for us. So thank you, buddy. Man, thank you for your ministry. Great to see him and Chris with us today. Wonderful to have you. Um, so that's a happy note. On the sad note, sad note is three, over 300 guys get interviewed. And they say, well, how is your life doing now? You know, you, you, you messed up your life. How's it doing now? And you know what they found out? I want to be generous here, but I think it was between 10 to 20 guys had confessed and repented of their sins and turned their lives around. And the rest of them were still denying it, were still justifying it, were angry and embittered and felt that the world was unfair to them. Now, obviously, when people are in positions of power, sometimes they get to the point where nobody's holding them accountable. And so they think they're unfallable. And, uh, and that can happen. But with all these eyes on them, how could that happen? It helps explain why not that many pastors get restored to ministry. And if that's true with pastors, when all the eyes are on them, how about the rest of us? I, I think my experience over the years has been it's pretty rare that that happens. I'm not talking about, you know, sins, because we all sin. We all are imperfect people who make mistakes and do things wrong and make bad decisions throughout our lives. I'm talking about a cluster of sins when you come together and there's a lot of things that come and then it, it, it creates a fall in your life, something really dramatic. It's hard to come back from that. It, it's actually pretty rare that it happens. We're going to talk about a man who breaks the mold today. And of course, his name is David because we're looking at decisions that nearly destroyed David. But note this, they nearly destroyed him. They did not. And we're going to learn why they didn't destroy him today. We're going to look at his life and, and see what happens in his life. And we'll see why they call him a man after God's own heart. Uh, we'll be looking at Psalm 51. And Psalm 51, at the beginning of that, we're, we're, in Psalm 51 is basically his response to what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, how he responds to the sin in his life. And he starts off with a superscription where he talks about who it's written to, who wrote it, and what's it about. So he says, I'm writing this to the choir master. So get this, guys. He's writing this as a song. It had a melody. He's a songwriter for everybody to sing. He wants them to sing this to all the people in Israel. He's the one, he says, I'm writing it, David's writing it, and what's it about? It's about the time that the prophet Nathan confronted him over his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. That's what this is about. 
I mean, you know, now, now let's, we can make excuses for David, right? He was a passionate man. He was a soldier. He lived at a time when a king could do whatever he wanted, even though he was under the rulership of God. But the other kings were doing whatever they wanted. Furthermore, it was a very barbaric time in history. So if everybody else is doing it, why not David? But what he did was so horrific. I mean, just think about what he did and how horrible it was. He took advantage of this young lady. He had a relationship with her. She ends up getting pregnant. And then he orchestrates the death of her husband, Uriah, on the battlefield. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that. But what's amazing here, and again, I think one of the reasons why God calls him a man after his own part, and I think one of the reasons why he let him live is to show us how he can transform a person when a person turns their lives over to him. And God does that in David's life to such a degree that I would say as horrible as his sin was, just as extraordinary is it that he turns it around. It's unbelievable that he would write this psalm. And imagine this. Think of the worst thing you've ever done in your life, the thing that you're most ashamed of, the thing you're most embarrassed of, the thing you don't want anybody to know. And how about writing a song about it for the whole nation? Number one hit. That's what he does. And it shows his vulnerability before human beings and his vulnerability and his dependence on God. And so it's, it's really quite amazing. And we're going we're gonna to learn from it today. And next week we're going to uh, go on and we're going to look at 2 Samuel uh, chapter six, 13 through 16. So read 2 Samuel 13 through 16. I promise you we won't go word for word. Uh, that's three chapters. But we'll get an overview and we'll look specifically at some lessons in David's life from that. And what we're going to see is that the decisions that he made, even though he's going to get it right here, they have consequences, and they affect his future decisions, especially with those closest to him, specifically his family. But today we're going to look at uh, Psalm 51, so let me read it to you. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So this is David's words, and, and David is seeking restoration with God. That's what this is about. And so the first thing he does is he confesses his sin. Um, and he says, God, have mercy on me. In other words, God, give me what I don't deserve. God, I, I don't deserve this, but I want your mercy. Now, what right does he have to come to God on his mercy? What, what hope does he have that God could give him any mercy? His hope is that God is a God of abundant mercy. God is merciful. He gives people what they don't deserve. And he looks specifically at the fact that God has steadfast love. Now, that's two words in English, but in Hebrew, it's one word, and the word is hesed. And it's one of the most powerful words found in the Old Testament. And hesed is not just love. It's this idea of a strong, robust, loyal love that will never let go. And, and what he's essentially saying here is give me not only what I can't, I don't deserve, but give me what only you can give me. Only you can give this to me. Nobody else is capable of giving me what you can give me. Because that's how great your love is. He goes further, and, and David and his kingdom would have a papyrus scroll, and he could roll it down, and he could write through what people did right and what people did wrong, and he could reward them and so forth. And he says, God, you have, now this is poetry, but he says, I know you have a royal scroll. And it's mentioned enough times that we wonder sometimes, maybe God does have, yeah, I do believe God has our names in a book, and there's stories about us in heaven. And he basically says, this chapter of my life, would you just blot it out? Would you just get rid of it for me? And notice how he uses the word transgressions. Transgressions are willful sins. So what David is saying is, I willfully had a relationship that I shouldn't have with Bathsheba, and I willfully killed her husband. I admit it. Okay, I'm done. I did it. I admit it. Will you have mercy on me? Will you, will you just, will you get rid of it for me? And then he goes on and he says, um, he says, wash me. And the language he uses when you wash a dirty rag. And he says, thoroughly or repeatedly. Wash me like a rag and, and wash me and wring me out, Lord, and keep washing me. I don't just want things to be right with you. I don't want you just to forgive me, but help me to essentially forgive myself. Help me to get over this thing. This is horrible. He says, cleanse me. And in literally in Hebrew, it's interesting. It's almost impossible to translate this right in English. He says, cleanse me from my sin. What he's literally saying is, unsin me. Unsin me. Give me a restart. Give me a reboot. Unsin me. Take it away, please. He says, I, I know that these thoughts are still in my mind. This transgression is sin. And he uses the words transgression, sin, iniquity. He uses these synonyms poetically to emphasize that any way you want to cut it, I've blown it. And the problem is, is he says, it's always before me. Have you ever done something wrong and you just, you just can't get it out of your mind? And, and maybe it's, everybody else says they've forgiven you, but you just can't forgive yourself, sort of. You just can't forget it. You can't get over it. And every place you look, there it is. And he says, God, I, I know it's before you. And I just, I just want it to go away. I want it to go away. I want you to forgive me, and I want me to be able to move on with my life. And get past this. And he says, I know what I need to do, and it's this. I need to take my sin to you and say that I have sinned against you. Because, you see, you're the only one I've really sinned against. 
It wasn't Bathsheba and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Uriah because you made Bathsheba and Uriah. And so when I sinned against them, I sinned against the one who made them. And when I sinned, I broke the moral laws of the universe. In my heart, I know it's wrong. And in the book of the Bible, I know it's wrong. I have sinned against you. And you are right in your judgments. I deserve to be condemned to hell for what I have done. And I want to recognize that. Now, if you've ever been in a situation like this, let me explain something here. This is not for the faint-hearted. One of the most painful, one of the most difficult things that a person can do is to face your sin. It is extraordinarily painful to be able to go to the God of the universe and say, I have done it, and I've done it against you. There's few things in life that are going to be more painful. But let me tell you that what will be more painful is if you hang on to it. If you hang on to it, it'll dog you the rest of your life. The only way out is to courageously go head on with God and say, I have done it, I've done the wrong thing, and I want to make it right. And that's what, that's what David does here. And that's what makes him, uh, you know, really such an incredible guy. Um, and then David goes on and he says, um, it's not just that I sinned in a big way, but he says, you know, if we get down to it, God, I've always been a sinner. I've always done wrong from the very beginning, from the beginning of my existence, from the time I was conceived by my mother. Um, and Paul will say the same thing. He uses this passage in Romans chapter 3, verse 4 to say, yeah, we're all born sinners. We talked about this in Romans. The Bible's perspective is not that we're all born good people and then bad things happen to us and we become bad, but rather that we're all imperfect people. It's we've fallen away from God. Next to God, we're nothing. And it starts that way. And it starts where? From our very existence. Now, here's something that's important to note. When does David say his existence begins? He says, sin begins when I start li started living. I started living in perfection. When did I start living? When does he say? When I was conceived by my mother. Now, some people will say, well, I always knew sin was a dirty thing. Oh, my goodness. That sin is just for procreation, just for having kids. But it's not very good. He, his mother sinned when she gave him birth. But that's, that's not, you know, there are people that say that. But that's not at all what he's saying here. What he's saying here is, I was a sinner at the time of my birth, at the time of conception. And this is what I want to drill home. Life begins at conception. That's very clear here and elsewhere in Scripture. It is poetry, but he, he, he just, it's, he's assuming that you understand this. When does it begin? It begins at conception. That's when it begins. So we need to stop calling babies embryos because that depersonalizes them. They're human beings. God has placed them inside a mother's womb. And so when we take their lives, we don't abort them, we murder them. That's essentially what's happening here when we look at this passage. If life begins at conception, then if we take a life after conception in a womb, and sometimes after, that is not mere abortion, that is murder. We're taking the child's life. But of course, we have to recognize Okay, let's hold on to this now. We have to recognize the woman's right here, right? It's her right to build the baby. But the problem is, is at least 50% or more of these babies are female. 
So we've got a problem, don't we? And part of the problem is, is that there's some women here, possibly, that have had abortions. And we have a dear friend of ours who sat at our table just weeks ago and wept as she shared with us about her three abortions. But she loves Jesus, and she's used that in her life to minister to others. She sought his forgiveness and had restoration in her life. It's a beautiful story. Because if God can forgive David of adultery and murder, he can certainly forgive anybody of abortion. But it, it doesn't mean that we justify and say it's okay. It's not okay, and we move away from it, and we change, and we, and we don't do that. But there is forgiveness here, and it's part of that story that God forgives. There's nothing that he can't forgive, and that's what's so beautiful with this passage. Um, David goes on, and he says, you know, in truth, you know, I, I know, God, that you're going to take care of things, and I know you'll take care of things. Essentially, you'll take care of things inside of me. Now, um, another guy I've liked since I was young, but I've never heard him speak, and I'm looking forward to it in heaven, is a guy called Charles Haddon Spurgeon, called the Prince of Preachers. He's one of the great speakers and writers in history. He has a, a commentary called The Treasury of David, where he writes about Psalms, and he's very quotable. So I have a couple quotes from him today as I was looking at that recently. Uh, he wrote this about this passage, verse 6. He says, Always has the Holy One of Israel estimated man by their inner nature and not by their outward professions. God looks at our inner nature if it's been transformed by the Holy Spirit. He does not look at what we say. Do you understand what's going on there? I can tell you I'm a godly man. I'm a strong Christian man. But God is never faked out. He looks in here. And that reminds me of what happened when Samuel was sent by God to find the, David and make him king, to anoint him as the future king of Israel. And remember what happens is he has all of his brothers, and some of them are looking pretty good, and God tells him specifically not to look on their appearance or on their height or their stature, and he says this is the reason why. For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. What's going on inside? And David says this, if I am insincere, then everything I've said so far has zero meaning. But if I'm sincere, God, I know you'll hear me because I know your nature. I know your character. I know you'll forgive me. And I know you'll begin to teach me and restore me inside out because that's what really matters. What's going on here is what we call confession. Confession is when you admit you've done something wrong. Confession is when you admit you need a savior. Confession is when you admit that you need help to get out of this jam that you're in. And that's where you got to start. Have you, have you ever met a person who's never wrong? If you've met one, you've met one too many, right? Um, their characters, boy, I mean, they will, they'll tell you things they did wrong, but it isn't something you even notice or it isn't something that really matters. But if you confront them on something or tell them that you've hurt you, suddenly they'll turn. They'll attack you. They'll yell and scream sometimes. They'll manipulate and twist it and do anything they can to deny and justify that they're the ones that have the problem. And the problem just gets worse and it hurts everybody. 
And they think that by covering up, they're going to take care of themselves. And sometimes it seems like they're getting away with it. But internally, we can see from what David said already, they're not happy. And it's hurting them and it's hurting others around them. And ultimately, it'll bring them down, if not here in heaven. By the way, maybe he's so frank to say that I think a good example of this has been our president. You know, he, 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 doesn't, you know, he doesn't say sorry about things. You know, he's not wrong. But that could be said about a lot of people. He's just prominent. I can tell you a guy that was like that. He was a guy I worked with as a pastor. He was never wrong. Whole church fell around him. Took everybody out until he was the last guy left, and they finally kicked him out. Ruined a wonderful ministry because he could not be wrong. And, and that happens, and it's a horrible, insidious disease when you get to the place where you say you're not wrong, and it will catch up to you, and, it, and it'll get you. Now, here's a question. Have you confessed your sin to God? Um, God will blot it out. He'll cleanse you. He, he'll restore your inward self. For some of us, though, it's time to stop denying. It's time to stop justifying. It's time to face our sin and repent of it. It may be pornography, bullying, anger, manipulation, adultery, or some addiction, because all of those relate to what we're talking about with David. All of that relates to what David is going through. Or it may be something else. Uh, but it's time to call it what it is. Confession is when you admit it. That's the starting place. It starts when we put our faces on the ground before God. Because it's then when he can pick us up and love us and let us know that he does forgive us. He's forgiven us all along, but it's for ourselves that we need this healing to get right with God. Now, the next thing he does is he prays that God will restore his joy in verses 7 through 12. And, um, and he says this, he says, uh, he gets back to the beginning kind of, but he, he says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a branch and they would take, it was a rite uh, ritual service. And they take the hyssop when somebody usually had leprosy and they would, Cleanse them of leprosy. What I believe David's saying is he's saying, I feel like I've got leprosy. I've got the leprosy of my soul. Will you just cleanse me? Will you heal me miraculously? me? Will you be the, the way maker here and find a way out of this thing for me and just, just make me better? Um, and he says, um, I want, I, God, could you reboot me? Could you give me joy and gladness again? Remember how much fun we used to have together? I'm not having that fun anymore. In fact, David writes about how he's feeling at this time. And this is what he says. He says in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And that, that is just one, the two verses. The whole, the whole psalm just talks about how miserable he is because he's not dealing with this sin before God. And so he says, um, I, my bones, I, metaphorically, you've broken my bones. I want you to restore them, make me healthy again. Um, I want to be broken before you. I want you to hide these things. And then he, he turns it in verse 10 and he says, create a clean heart in me. Reboot me, make me new. And this is a song too. You know, you ever heard that one? I'm not going to sing it because you all leave. But, but create in me a clean heart, oh God. And it goes right from this. And, and he says, yeah, I, I need to be renewed. I need to be a new person. And he says, I, I don't want you to leave me. I don't want to lose your presence. And people have struggles with this. And they say, he says, I don't want you to take the Holy Spirit from me. And people say, oh, okay, a big theological issue. Right here in the Bible, it says that he takes the Holy Spirit from us. That creates a lot of problems. What are we dealing with here? Well, what we're dealing with here is poetry. Um, he also, I can also assure you that God did not literally break his bones. 
This is poetry. So you've got to look at it and say, does, that, does it say this anyplace else in Scripture that would support this? No, it doesn't. It doesn't support this elsewhere. So we, the clue is, then, is there something else in the context he's talking about? Well, he says he's talking about not taking your presence away from me. Well, the Holy Spirit, God is always here. The Holy Spirit's always here, but do we always experience him? No, we don't usually if we're doing the wrong thing. In fact, I would say this, that most people think that when they do wrong, God's going to, you know, spank them. Sometimes if you come from abusive homes, you think, well, God's going to beat me up for this one. And God will spank us sometimes. But you know what God usually does? You know what God usually does when we're steeped in sin and we're not listening to him? He just takes himself away. He doesn't need to do much else. This world is so messed up, he just says, okay, have at it on your own. Go ahead and self-destruct. And we do the rest. We do all the damage. And David knows this. And David says, the worst thing you can do is, is be silent. Sometimes I feel like I'm talking to you and you're not there. You've made yourself invisible. You've made yourself silent. I, 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 don't, I don't feel you anymore. I don't sense you anymore. I want that back. I want that back. I want the joy that I once had. And the joy here is not the joy of just giddy happiness, but it is happiness, but it's more this idea of contented rest. Isn't that a sweet way to say it? Contented rest. I want to be content in you. I want to rest in you. I want to be held in your arms again. I want to feel secure. I want to feel that kind of gladness of heart that comes only when I'm in a right relationship with the living God. And that's, that's what God wants for us in this situation. He wants us to be restored. Have you ever had a relationship with someone, and, and of course, obviously, this often happens with boyfriends, girlfriends, and husbands and wives, where you hurt somebody's feelings. You hurt their feelings. And maybe they leave. They go away for a while or something, and you just feel miserable because you know you hurt them. And you feel miserable because you know they hurt you. And now what do you do? You got to work it out. A lot of times people, and especially guys, are wimps about this. You know, guy, it, it, takes, it takes a man to be able to go, let's work this out. And let's be vulnerable and work through what I did wrong, what you did wrong. But a lot of guys, you know, they're, they're so tough that they're really cowards. And they say, no, I don't want to talk about this. Let's just wait. I don't want to talk about it. And the situation gets worse. And, and women can do this too. Not just picking on guys. It just seems like guys do that more. And, and they got to talk about it. And it's hard. Hard work. You got to work it out. Here's the situation with God. If you're in a relationship with God, it's, conflict is extremely simple. It's always your fault. It's never his fault. So all you got to do is figure out one side of it. But once you figure out the one side, you need to make that one side right with him. And that's called repentance. See, confession is when you confess, you, you admit you have a problem. Repentance is when you do something about it, when you turn it around. And that's frankly how people come to know Christ. People come to know Christ when they admit that they have a need. They admit they're a sinner in need of a Savior, and they admit that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose from the grave. They admit it. Repentance is when you surrender to God and say, I turn to you and cast myself upon you, and I'm going to live for you now. A lot of people stop with confession. They admit, oh, I'm a sinner, and oh, I have a need, and I believe all that stuff, and I'll even go to church. But they never get to the point where they surrender. Even the thief on the cross recognized that he had a need for salvation. And he surrendered to Jesus. 
Have you done that? If you haven't, please come and talk to us today because we'd love to talk to you about that topic. Um, and if you have, then it's a situation where you can have joy, but it comes when you turn around and you seek after God. It's going after him. It's seeking to be in a close relationship with him. You know, do you have God's joy in your life? You experience that contented rest when you talk to him all day long, when you pray with him and set aside time to read the Bible and grow and become closer to him. Um, it, when he becomes a part of our life. When we do this, we naturally experience his joy in our lives. You know, it's interesting. I find that sometimes if I'm kind of low and down, I'll talk to a good friend. And, you know, I have energy again. And I feel up again. I've drawn energy from that person. How much more so do we draw that kind of joy from God when we're in communion with him? That's what God wants us to do. That's where he wants us to be. Now, what's really neat with David, and I love this twist here, this turn. He so far, he confesses, he repents, and then he says, as a result of this, I'm going to teach restoration to others. That's what he says in verses 13 to 17. He says, now I'm praying that if I can, you can turn me around, I'm going to turn around and help others. Isn't that a cool concept? What can I do to make this better for others? He says, I'm going to teach other sinners to return to you. Um, and he goes on and he says, you know, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Blood guiltiness is killing Uriah and all this stuff. Be my salvation and I will sing. I will sing. And he wrote this song as an example of telling of what, how you do what's right. And I will praise you and I will help others help you. I'll help them turn around. I want to turn my life around so I can help others turn their lives around. Spurgeon says this, my fall will be the restoration of others. Catch that. My fall will be the restoration of others. How can my fall restore others in their relationship with God? A number of years ago now, it came to my mind because it was Christmas time, Carrie and I went to the Rancho Santa Fe Country Club. Remember that, honey? For, for dinner. Christmas dinner. It was an amazing experience. It was possibly one of the best meals I've ever had in my life. Candlelight. Um you know, decorated to the hilt with Christmas stuff, Christmas carolers coming in person and singing to you, your requests. We were the guests of Robin Patrice. Robin Patrice had raised her kids with us, gone to the beach with us for parties and birthday parties and church events. Um, and our son had recently died. And they were taking us out to comfort us and to encourage us during this time. They knew what it was like to go through hard times but through, of a different nature. You see, a couple of years ago, in fact, when we had first met them, this began, is Rob became an extremely successful young lawyer, and his wife was left at home with the four kids. And an attractive lady came to work for Rob, and they began an adulterous relationship. And little Patrice went to the office, and she confronted the lady, and she confronted her husband. And in a rare case that you don't see very often, Rob was completely broken, and he completely turned it around. And he completely changed his life. And their relationship came back together in an extraordinary way. And they, the kids have done well. And just, it's just a miraculous story of God's grace. And as a result of that, they began to care for people that were hurting, like Carrie and me. But also, specifically, they would minister to people who had gone through adultery and help them restore their marriages. And they became pretty good at it when people were willing to be helped. And so I have a question for you. Has your fall restored others? 
has your fall restored others? One of the things I've learned is that the things that we struggle in the most, the areas we fall in, are the areas we're most equipped to help others in. Do you ever think about that? If it's an area you've fallen in and you've overcome it, you've learned how you can help others. If you've had a hard time in your marriage and you've worked through it and are now doing well, I think you have some stuff to teach others that are having struggles in their marriage. If you've gone through adultery, you can help others who've gone through adultery. You've had anger issues, you can help others who have, or, or struggles of different kind, you know, uh, Whatever struggles you've had, maybe you've gone through, I don't know, whatever, you, you fill in the blank. Uh, here's an example I think is a classic one. If you look at different organizations, how about Alcoholics Anonymous? Why do you think Alcoholics Anonymous is so successful? I'll tell you one of the reasons why. You have a person who has struggled significantly with alcohol and is presently doing well helping somebody who is presently struggling with alcohol. Doesn't it make sense? The person who has the struggle is now helping the person who is having the struggle. What is it in your life that you've struggled in that you can now turn around and help somebody else overcome? Finally, um, David comes with a broken heart. And in verses 16 through 17, it sounds almost like he's saying, you know, oh, don't worry about this, the offering. God, I know you don't really require the offering. It almost sounds like he's against the sacrificial system. At this point in time, he's not against the sacrificial system. Don't miss the point. The point is that he's saying the, the system means nothing if you come with an impure heart. You can do all sorts of things. You can go over and you can take every, every one of those cards down off of the angel tree and you can give all that money to people and it means nothing to God. You'll get, all of us will pat you on the back and say, oh, how wonderful. And it means nothing to God if it isn't done in, right in here. If you did it for yourself, if you made the sacrifice, the financial sacrifice, the time, made, did something to make yourself uncomfortable, but your purpose is wrong, it doesn't matter. God smells it out. He always knows. You don't fool him. And David said, I can come before you and do all that and I know it means nothing at this point. What you need to know is that I am broken. That I am completely, wholeheartedly, 100% yours. Hey, have you guys heard of dog and cat theology? It's a, it's a new thing I was reading. This is true. Um, dog and cat theology. I, I see it in my home all the time. I've got a cat named Chloe. And I'm trying to work in the sermon and she comes to the, the sliding grass and starts meowing at me to let her in. And I know if I let her in that she'll just want out again. She just wants to control me. That's cat theology. What can I get this stupid oaf to do for me? Okay, that's how the cat thinks. My dogs, Maggie and Shasta, they just want me to be happy. What can we do to make you happy? They're wagging their tails. You want to play ball? You want me to cuddle with you? You want me to follow you around? What can I do, you know? Guess who we're supposed to be? Most people follow cat theology. God, what can you do for me? But dog theology is when we say, God, what can I do for you? My life has nothing to do with me. My life is 100% about what do I do for you? And that's where David gets. And David doesn't stop there. He does something that's really sweet. He goes on and he says, I want you to take care of the people that live in Jerusalem. That's the capital up on Mount Zion. That's where we do all our singing. That's where the tabernacle is. That's where you, you know, your presence is most prevalent. And that is the capital of all of Israel. I want all of Israel to come and make proper sacrifices. That's how he ends. I want all of Israel to be broken like I've been broken. 
I want them to experience what I've experienced. You see that? I want them to be broken people too. Um, in, in the ESV study Bible, John Collins explains this very well. He says this, the psalm closes by enabling worshipers to see the relationship between their own spiritual health and the well-being of the whole body of God's people. That is, each member is linked to all the others in a web of relationships, and together they share in the life of God as it passes through the whole body. Thus, each member contributes to, or else distracts from, the health of the whole. The ideal Israel is a community of forgiving penitents. That's what we should be. Faithfully embracing God's covenant and worshiping him according to the rites he appointed, this is the community that can bring light to the whole world. I was looking at this and it reminded me of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where it reads, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. These are, are clay jars, probably candle holders. And they probably were made very nice and they looked good and they were attractive and people wanted to check them out. But as they got closer to them, because they were made of clay, they saw they had holes in them. And when you light the candle inside, you see the candle coming through the cracks. That's who we're supposed to be. So that when we move into this church, and even now when we're outside, I hope that people see that there's something special about us. They get close and they see that we love Jesus. And no matter how horrible the things are we go through in our lives, we hold on to him and he carries us through. But I want them to also see that we're not any better than them. That we are broken people with our problems. And our source of strength comes from the God who lives in us and who is the light of the world. And then they'll see the living God. I have a man in my life for years that I've, I've tried to reach and tell him about Jesus. And we've had a good relationship. But it didn't get really far until my son became ill and died. His son had become ill and died. And now we went deep. And I was absolutely fascinated by the fact that in all my efforts to try to help him in my strength, I failed. But when I came to him in my weakness, I was able to have a relationship. God will work more through your weaknesses than through your strengths. It's when we're broken. It's when we're open. It's when we're vulnerable. And that's what David here does. And so I, I ask you to be vulnerable. Um, and, and beyond that, you know, I, I just, um, I want to just encourage you to, um, to be broken people. I want people to be attracted to our church because they see that there is something different about us. I want them to see that we love one another despite our differences and backgrounds and whatever it might be, that this is a safe place. I want them to also see as they get close that we're broken people with problems of our own. I want them to see that we hang on to Jesus. He's the one who gets us through. I want them to see that we are people that will apologize when we do the wrong things. But I want them to see that we are people that will stand till death in our convictions in Jesus Christ. I want them to see Jesus in us. I, I have a confession to make. I've struggled with this sermon. I've struggled some with this sermon because you know why? I found so few people for examples. I was really troubled by how few people have been restored in ministry. And I've known pastors who've been restored and then I, I knew them before and I know them afterwards and they're just, they're embittered, they're not real. Oftentimes they're just very hard. 
and others, I guess, have gotten restored, but I don't know them. There are those that have done well. I've given you some examples of people who have turned it around. Our friend through abortion, another friend through, um, you know, through adultery. And I have known pastors that I believe have turned it around. But they're just few and far between. And that's why David's example is such a good one. But it's also important to notice that what David did was extraordinarily horrible. And I doubt if there's anybody in this room here. Adultery maybe, but murder? Don't think so. And yet, God forgave him and he turned his life around. And so the same thing can happen for you. Don't let it be said of you that you're unwilling to face your sin and make things right with God and others. We have a loving, forgiving, and awesome Father. There's no reason to run from him and every reason to run to him. We join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we're thankful for David's life. In fact, kind of, today we're thankful for how he came out of this. It's just, it's a hard thing. I'm almost, in a way, Lord, I'm almost thankful for what he did wrong, as horrible as it was, because you did turn it around for him, and you did turn it around for Bathsheba, and I believe Uriah is in heaven. Um, and then you gave David as an example for us for what you can do in our lives. So we thank you for that. And as we prepare today to take the Lord's Supper, um, providentially, this passage, I think, ties in well to that. And so we, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for that as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.